Okay, thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, this is the topic of our talk, getting to the heart of the matter, collaboration and fetal cardiac palliative care team. We have no disclosures as much as we'd like to. Um, so these are the objectives we are talking about today. So um, today we plan to demonstrate a collaborative and comprehensive <coughs> approach to multidisciplinary care for the women and their fetuses referred from MFM with potentially life-threatening, um, life-limiting congenital heart disease in their fetuses. Uh, we're going to review optimal strategies for involvement of subspecialties, <coughs> including cardiology, palliative care, neonatology and labor and delivery, and OB and MFM. We're gonna describe the opportunities uh, for improved family-centered care via intra and intra-hospital multidisciplinary care teams. So to start off, I'm just gonna briefly talk a little bit just about fetal cardiac disease. Um, congenital heart disease is the most common birth defect. It is the leading cause of birth defect-related infant illness and death. 4.2% of all neonatal deaths are due to congenital heart disease and nearly half of the death of all patients dying related to congenital heart disease occur in infancy. 15% of congenital heart disease are also associated with genetic conditions which can incur additional risk. So this is a really kind of high risk situation. Um, and in the past several decades, really we've made impressive advances in our ability to assess the fetus during pregnancy. Uh, more than ever, we can predict severe disease that may be life-limiting uh, very early before birth. Uh, specifically, advances in genetic diagnosis and fetal imaging have created a new fund of knowledge on fetal assessment, um, while at the same time we've witnessed advancement in the care of children with heart disease. Um, survival is possible now when historically it really wasn't and we didn't have any options. Uh, nonetheless, there are cases where the risk of infant death is very high or the long-term severe disability is likely and often, uh, despite after life-saving procedures, uh, there can be long-term morbidities. As often as the case is the case, the more we know, the more we don't know. With more knowledge comes more questions. The greater the number of options, the greater number of decisions that need to be made and these decisions can be really difficult to make. Um, this is just an example of a fetal echocardiogram looking at a four-chamber view um, with color and with um, just 2D imaging that's really been only possible for the last uh, 20 or 30 years or so. In some cases of severe disease, it may be appropriate for parents to choose not, extraordinary, not to take extraordinary measures to prolong survival, but to choose comfort care after delivery. Um, in you know, our current medical society, the expectation is that the default care is to prolong life. Um, so in these particular cases, the decision for comfort care is really critical um, in advance for planning. Um, in critically ill fetal patients' decision to pursue aggressive management versus comfort care is the most challenging decision a parent can ever have to make. So um, a patient of mine several years ago made a decision to pursue comfort care after a prenatal consultation with me. Um, her baby was diagnosed with ductal dependent single ventricle heart disease. We reviewed her options for treatment. Uh, without intervention, we expected that her daughter would pass away when the ductus arteriosus closed because there would no longer be pulmonary perfusion. Um, we uh, reviewed potential treatment options as far as surgical intervention. And after a few follow-up visits, she and her husband had made their decision um, 
to pursue comfort care rather than surgical management, and she was still really grappling with that decision. Um, these are some annotated quotes that we got as, from a message from her as she was trying to make this decision. I feel as though we may be uncommon, as though we are heartless or not very loving by choosing not what other parents choose. Those parents that put everything into the doctor's hands to save their babies' lives. I feel terribly that all those parents choose to put their babies through all these surgeries. Do they do it because they really love their babies or because they can't let go? Or because they are too selfish to let their babies go with God? No one has the power to know the future of my baby girl. I hear in my head that question, what if? What if her duct doesn't close as soon as it's supposed to? What if God doesn't take her fast? What if she's not ill, as the doctors say? What if a miracle happens? I don't want to be the one to choose who's going to stay alive or not. I don't want to feel the way I feel right now, responsible for the life of my baby girl. This is not fair to anyone. And she's right. It doesn't feel fair, and it's not, um, it's not really in any position that anybody wants to be in. In pediatric cardiology, our training centers on the diagnosis and treatment of heart disease. In fetal consultation, we review the findings on a fetal echocardiogram. We go over anatomy, physiology, changes that happen after a baby uh, is born. We talk about the long and short-term prognosis. But the life of these babies isn't only their cardiac disease. These families need and deserve more. This was the nidus and mission of our collaboration to develop the fetal palliative care cardiac team. Well, fetal cardiac, whatever. Fetal cardiac palliative care team, that's a mouthful. Um, and these are a couple examples of our, how our collaboration works. And we're gonna just start off with a couple cases. Hi, thanks to everyone for having me, joining me today. Um, this first patient is a young woman who presented to an outside um, maternal fetal medicine office um, with, pregnant with her second child. Her history was mainly complicated by class two obesity, and she had several early ultrasounds that were limited due to her size, and ultimately a cardiac defect was suspected um, pretty late in the game at 23 weeks. Um, she was referred here to pediatric cardiology at CCMC for a prenatal diagnosis. So she was originally planning to deliver at an outside hospital. Um, she was referred to fetal cardiology due to findings of single ventricle heart disease. Um, there were some additional um, concerns on her prenatal evaluation, inclu including an increased nuchal translucency, multiple echogenic foci, and uh, marginal placenta previa. We saw her at 24 weeks, 24 and one seventh week gestation, and the diagnosis of hypoplastic left heart syndrome with mitral stenosis, mitral stenosis and aortic treasure was made. So this is the, um, that four chamber view that I just showed you, and this, this is the ventricle here that's not squeezing, and there really isn't any blood flow coming across that valve there, which is the abnormality we see. She had extensive counseling um, in her prenatal visit. Um, specifically, we talked about the fact that ductal closure is lethal because blood flow cannot reach the body once that happens. Prostaglandins can be used to maintain ductal dependency, and surgical treatment involves three-stage surgeries over the first few years of life. Um, the long-term prognosis was discussed, and follow-up in four weeks was recommended. Ten days after appointment, her, our appointment with her, a phone call came to our office. Um, after considering the surgical options laid out at her appointment and doing some of their own research, 
Uh, the mother and the father together decided against sur the surgical course and stated that they wanted hospice care. They had done um, extensive reading on their own. They had spoken to parents that had both gone through the um, comfort care option and that have had children that have grown up with single ventricle heart disease. Um, and they were both very on the same page as far as what their, what their desires were for their child. Um, arrangements were then made for a meeting with the palliative care team uh, during her fetal cardiology follow-up that was scheduled. And thus the fetal cardiac palliative care team gets uh, involved. You're seeing a few people who are representing the team here today, but what I want to stress to everybody is that there are literally dozens of players behind the scenes here who are the folks who actually operationalize, along with us, the things that we're going to be talking about today. So by the time this couple had made their decision to pursue palliative care, uh, the, the patient, the, the maternal patient, was at 32 weeks gestation. And as uh, Alicia commented, the parents had actually done some pretty extensive research, talking to parents both who had done palliative care and parents who had done uh, aggressive surgical intervention. Uh, this is a situation where uh, the long-term prognosis was poor, and the interesting thing about it, of course, is that this was a terrible heart disease in an otherwise healthy baby, which is both the tragedy and I think the complication of this. The parents, after talking to families, decided that they did not believe that aggressive intervention and multiple surgeries were in the best interest of their uh, baby. And mother actually reported in, her, in one of her uh, meetings with us that she felt relieved that she could provide comfort care. Whoops. So we had a second meeting at 36 weeks and follow-up subsequent to that. And one of the things that I want to stress to everybody is that this is not a one and done. This is not a situation in which a family comes in, meets with a specialist, heads on their merry way, and everybody goes on about their job. There are multiple meetings, there are multiple phone conversations, there's a lot of wraparound that's involved in what you're going to hear us talking about today. So the parents at that time met with the extended palliative care team that included both the physicians and the nurse coordinators for both cardiology and for uh, palliative care. And they, again, confirmed their wishes for palliative care comfort measures after birth. And a preliminary birth plan for the baby was developed. One of the things that I do as the one of the neonatologists on the team, not the sole one, but one of them, uh, is to work with a family to develop a template that is very specific about what they want for their baby after delivery. Do they want their baby monitored? Do they want any blood work done? Do they want vitamin K and erythromycin, for example? And families have different thoughts about these things, and those are incorporated into the palliative care plan. The template with the uh, individualization that I've done is then shared with the family the family confirms that, and then that template is shared with all of the services involved. So at this point, that would be neonatology, MFN, OB, uh, and the labor and delivery team. The birth plan with this family was then confirmed in two further phone calls uh, with the mother up to and including uh, just several days prior to her uh, delivery.
So a lot of our patients come from the state of Connecticut. So when they get diagnosed and they need to deliver at Hartford Hospital, we find a group to transfer the, their care to for prenatal care. Usually this is either a, a private group in the community or um, a lot of our patients go to Women's Ambulatory Health Services, WAS. Um, during their prenatal care, we spend a lot of time discussing how they want us to manage the remainder of their pregnancy. Um, we review all the options for fetal surveillance to assure fetal well-being. Um, we discuss whether they want intensive monitoring, which is twice weekly non-stress tests. A lot of these babies are at increased risk for intrauterine fetal demise. Um, we talk about the frequency of the ultrasounds that they want. And then really we try to lay out um, the plan, the birth plan for labor and delivery. Usually when a woman comes in to labor and delivery, um, their fetus is monitored either intermittently or continuously throughout the labor course. And if we see signs of fetal distress, we can do certain interve interventions or even a cesarean delivery. Um, so we discuss with the patient what actually she wants and what kind of monitoring she wants during labor and delivery and what interventions she would want for fetal distress. Um, this is important because we discuss to them the, the possibility of fetal demise dur during the labor course. Some women can understand that. Some women desperately want to just be a mother and to hold a live baby in their arms. Um, so even if maybe they don't want aggressive management after the baby's born, they still want to hold a live baby. So we have to lay out all of these options to a patient that sometimes we don't know very well, and we have to ask specific questions. Um, and then we have to carefully document all of this in the medical record and make the plan very clear for when the patient comes to labor and delivery so that the team on follows the plan that we made and doesn't go ahead and put the, the patient on the monitor or doesn't say, hey, your baby's heart rate's low, we're gonna do a stat C-section right now because then the patient can get caught up and maybe her plan can deviate. Um, so all of this planning is, um, is really important. This particular patient declined non-stress tests she declined further ultrasounds with us. She was adamant that she didn't want monitoring and labor, and she did not want a C-section for fetal indications. Um, as she lives far from this area, she was admitted at 39 weeks and one day um, for induction of labor. So one of the things that was going on in the background of this particular case was given that this was an otherwise healthy appearing baby with a horrible heart disease, there needed to be a lot of education. So for example, Dr. Wang uh, went to labor and delivery on a couple of occasions and educated the labor and de delivery nurses about this particular uh, uh, complex congenital heart disease, not just its short-term, but its long-term <coughs> prognosis. We also spent time up in labor and delivery talking with the labor and delivery nurses about what kinds of things they should be looking for. So for these particular patients, through the graciousness, actually, of Hartford Hospital, they stay with their mothers in the labor and delivery suite until they either pass away or are discharged. And this was actually an outcome of the first case that Alicia talked about that we worked on together. Uh, that mother desperately wanted to have her baby with her, and fortunately, our colleagues in labor and delivery were, were willing to say, well, if you'll support us, we can do that. So the patient is considered an admitted patient to the NICU. The NICU attending is the baby's physician, the practitioners care for the baby, and our NICU nurses care for the baby in labor and delivery uh, as well. In this case, male patient delivered, remained in mom's room uh, on labor and delivery with his parents for the entire time. 
He received symptomatic treatment for his respiratory distress, took a little creativity on one of my colleagues' parts because he had some initial work of breathing that could have simply have been related to the fact that it was a cesarean section without labor. He received morphine and Ativan for pain and discomfort, and he died at eight, eight, hour, eight hours of age and was actually pronounced by uh, Dr. Moss, uh, who was, uh, had actually come in to see the patient that day. morning. Thanks so much for being here. So our introduction came as, an, as the family had made some initial decisions that they did want comfort care. And one of the, the dangerous things in medicine is when a family is told there's nothing more that can be done. And that's when we hope you'll call us because we say, oh, but there's so much more that can be done for this family. So we were delighted to be introduced into the care of this mom and the family. So the meeting was initially initiated by the parents. It's not always initiated by the parents, but it is an option for a parent to request a palliative care consult. At times, the, fam the team will recommend that a palliative care consult might be, be might be in the best interest of the patient. Um, or at times, a um, palliative care consult is ordered by the team, and then we are introduced to the family for supportive care reasons. So we were part of the multidisciplinary meeting that included cardiology, ourselves, and neonatology. Oftentimes we're called to assist with goals of care and defining of goals. In this case, their goals were pretty well defined, but what they needed was support and refining of those goals to make their goals be met successfully at the time of delivery. So again, one of the things that we do a great deal of is working with goals of care, which may or may not be clear at the time that our meeting first begins. This is an exceptional case of a family that was clear with what they wanted, but they weren't sure how to get there. And they really needed some assistance with some support from their family. Their family, not all of their family members agreed that this was the best thing for this baby. So we were able to help them identify how they would work outside of the hospital and sharing with their community their choices that they had made. One of the other pieces that's so important, if you look in the literature, there's actually an article that discusses the limitations of referrals by pediatric cardiologists to the palliative care team, and one of the outcomes of that investigation was that cardiologists felt that a referral to palliative care might diminish the hope of the families. And we see this every day. We see this constantly when people say, we don't want you to take away the family's hope. Well, I'm here to tell you, we, we don't want to take away the family's hope either. And in fact, we will hope with the family. But we have to remember, as things change for these families, that we can actually reframe what hope is. So hope for a delivery of a healthy baby can become hope for a meaningful passing with some legacy for that child in their passing. So hope isn't always defined the same way throughout the trajectory of a journey of illness. But also it's important to know that we never take away hope. We will hope with the families. Our job isn't to take away the hope, but it's to prepare them for what might be coming based on the experience we have working with other families. We focused our transition to the concept of avoidance of suffering and promotion of a good death, which is seen in the literature consistently, that there is such a thing as a good death. And it is our job in the medical community when we know a patient is going to pass to really focus on what we can do to make that death acceptable and actually truly defined by what we call a good death. At the time of, of the baby's passing, we were involved in what we call legacy building, formerly known as memory making. But the truth is we're just not making memories. We're actually building a legacy of who this child was and what this child's meaning was for this family. 
So we worked with the family to, to do fingerprint charms for the baby, and you'll see a picture of what they can look like on the right. So it's a charm that the family then can wear around their neck, put in their drawer, do whatever they want, but it's a, it's a solid memento, and you'll see them on the necks of many of our oncology patients and otherwise the parents as you see them years after the child has passed. So we can facilitate that simple, that simple reminder for the family that really does mean a great deal. We did hand and footprint molds per the family's request. We arranged for Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep to come in and do family photography of the parents and this baby. Additionally, as was mentioned, the option was to keep this family together on LND. It was a very non-medicalized passing for this baby, thanks to the staff on LND that supported this. But that staff wasn't, was, wasn't used to this experience it frequently but not frequently enough that the comfort is there so one of the things that we were able to help provide was also comfort for both the NICU team and the staff that was taking care of this baby on L&D and as as you know as schedules permit this was a weekend when this happened so there was less resources available so we did come in to provide some support for this team and in follow-up what we found with this mom as we've spoken to her is that she's grieving as you would expect but there's a level, a, a, an element of gratitude that she brings to her grieving. And that gratitude is because we met her where she was. We allowed her to make the choices for her baby and her family. We honored those choices, but we didn't walk away. We stayed. So grieving with gratitude is one of the things that we really look for in our families as they experience a loss, is trying to help them feel as though the grieving process is supported and that their experience was the best possible experience that they could have. So as Alicia said, we all came together, and some of it was because of patients in the past that identified needs that we could meet as a team. I think this quote is really, really, really profound. It says that more than one million babies die on the first day of life, making the birthday the most dangerous day for babies in, every, in nearly every country, rich and poor alike. We think of a birthday as the most celebratory thing when a child is born, but the reality is for many families, it's a pretty trying and traumatic day. And we need to have our resources aligned so we can help those families. When we think about perinatal palliative care, it's really booming in the literature. And it's, we're seeing it everywhere in different capacities and in different program development. And I think when you look at where it first started, it's really important to realize that the first recognition was that neonates actually experience pain. And that seemed to be something that was really profound to people. And then as we found it, we realized it's not just pain, that there's other opportunities for comfort that just aren't pain mediated. We then started to think about, well, if these babies aren't surviving, what's happening to these mothers and how are we allowing them to bond at a time when they're losing their children? Well, it just goes to show that it's not just the moms too, and we can tell you in our experience that we work with the, the families in this experience and that the fathers and the support team are a part of the process as well. Well, it extends beyond the medical too, right? This affects communities which have spiritual and psychosocial components, and all of that is impacted by these children. And then we started to realize, well, what happens when we acknowledge this is happening before it happens? What happens when we actually think about this before the event occurs? And we realize that grief begins at the moment we allow it to be acknowledged. And therefore, allowing grief to be part of the process is actually something that allows for functional grieving in the aftermath. So that's when we came to the point where we are now, where we realized if we start to do this in the antenatal period, if we start to acknowledge what's coming, and we spend time reflecting on the ways that we can support throughout the journey, not just at the moment the baby's born, then we realize that we can develop relations with this family that will carry them and sustain them through the process of grief. Jay Milstein talks about integrative healing, and if you've ever seen one of my lectures before, then the top side 
will, the slide to the right will look somewhat familiar, but the bottom part is somewhat kind of a newer concept. So initially, when many of us went to medical school, we cured, and when there was nothing more that could be done, we would palliate, we would die, there would be a death, and then the bereavement would be initiated. We got some more sophisticated and said, you know, we can actually provide palliation at the time that we know that a life-limiting prognosis has been stated. So we started to have both curing and palliation at the same time, emphasizing death and bereavement kind of towards the end of the journey. Well, Milstein describes this quite beautifully, and what he talks about is that it's actually an integrative model where we talk about curing and healing at the same time. And if you look at what happens when we allow that to, to occur, we can actually have bereavement and grief occur at the same time that we're intertwined with hope, and then we can return to grief and bereavement, and that it doesn't have to be a simple stepwise process, that it's actually much more fluid. What this promotes is the opportunity to acknowledge it. It promotes the opportunity to initiate it early, it promotes and reminds us that just because death doesn't occur doesn't mean that there's not grief. I would argue every person that has a child that's in the NICU is grieving. Grieving the loss of what would have been a normal delivery elsewhere and other opportunities and other times. And so grief doesn't always portend to death. We just identify the two together. But acknowledging the, the potential for grief is really important. And that the bereavement ongoing process, that what we know is bereavement isn't something that begins after someone dies. We bereave, we grieve before the passing of the child. So when we reflect on this first case, we think about the fact that this is truly what we hope for in family-centered care. But what's a little different about this is there's a two-patient, one-family model. The mother is our first patient and the child is our second patient. And so it gives us an opportunity to provide really exceptional care for the mom that we may not have otherwise if we just meet her at the time that the baby is here. It's also a good example of successful interdisciplinary and inter-hospital approach, which as Marilyn stated, is not easy to get us all together, but so worth it for the journey for the family. It demonstrates the importance of the collaborative meeting style. Sometimes it seems a little inefficient to have three specialists in the room at the same time, but I would argue that what that allows for is all team members start on the same page. It's a seamless care for mom, family, and baby. That little child that passed never came to the NICU, but yet was a Connecticut children's patient and received all the benefits of being a Connecticut children's patient while staying in his mom's arms in LND. And again, we think this is an excellent case where there was an opportunity for reduction of suffering and achievement of a good death, which we feel was met. So the second case was a little bit different. Um, the second patient was an older mother, and again, she was referred late to maternal fetal medicine. Um, due to excessive amniotic fluid, growth restriction, and a suspected cardiac defect that was noted in her primary OB's doctor office. Um, she had previously declined all aneuploidy screening. Uh, she said the di di diagnosis of Down syndrome would never have changed her pregnancy management. Um, when we saw her at maternal fetal medicine, we confirmed the above findings, but we also saw a single umbilical artery and an abnormality in the posterior fossa. So based on the constellation of findings that we saw, um, we counseled her that there was a very, very high likelihood of um, aneuploidy in her fetus. Um, the full range of diagnostic testing was offered, including an amniocentesis and um, a serum blood draw for a cell-free DNA for the common trisomies. And she initially declined all, all testing, but a few days later she did return to our office for a cell-free DNA for the common trisomies. 
Um, due to the suspected cardiac defect, we also again referred her to pediatric cardiology for a further diagnosis. So we saw her um, and a diagnosis uh, was confirmed of congenital heart disease. The fetal echocardiogram showed a unbalanced AV canal defect and critical aortic stenosis. Um, looking at those constellations of findings, the options for management were discussed. Um, that included uh, a potential for a postnatal cardiac catheterization procedure to alleviate the aortic stenosis, as well as an AV canal repair at about three to six months of life. So we didn't anticipate neonatal surgery being required um, after birth, but did, did um, you know, predict that an intervention would be necessary, but not surgery. Uh, the delivery plan for lines and initiation of prostaglandins was recommended. Um, at the time that we saw her, she did not have uh, results for her um, cell-free DNA available. I don't, I don't recall specifically if they were actually drawn yet. I don't think they were, um, and we highly recommended that she pursue that. Um, and then follow-up was scheduled in three to four weeks. Prior to the next follow-up appointment with us, the selfie DNA results did come back showing a high likelihood for trisomy 18, and those were, results were provided by MFM. So we saw her at 36 weeks gestation, four weeks later. Um, there were some new findings on our echocardiogram. There was a new concern in addition to the unbalanced AV canal and to the aortic stenosis, we also saw that there was diffuse transverse arch hypoplasia with a uh, very high likelihood for coarctation of the aorta. And this changed what our management plan would be. Um, ductal closure, we suspected, would restrict blood flow to the body at the level of the arch, which for management would require surgery. So this would not be feasible with cardiac catheterization alone. So uh, this patient also transferred her care to deliver at Harvard Hospital. And again, similar to the previous case, we discussed all options for pregnancy management, um, including fetal surveillance, mode of delivery, and fetal monitoring and labor and delivery, um, and interventions for fetal distress. Um, this fetus was much more at risk for complications during the antenatal period due to the uh, significant growth restriction, and there's a high rate of fetal demise in um, fetuses with chromosomal malformations. Um, and for some patients, they, they don't want any monitoring during the antenatal period. But this patient requested um, twice-weekly non-stress tests. Um, she wanted weekly ultrasounds to monitor for growth restriction, which is what we normally do. And she did want monitoring on labor and delivery and a cesarean for fetal distress. She didn't think that we should alter our, our care plan based on the suspected genetic abnormality. Um, she ultimately had a cesarean delivery at 37 weeks and one day. Um, for both maternal and fetal indications. So on the day of birth, um, the diagnosis was confirmed. The baby had an AV canal with a unicuspid aortic valve and a hypoplastic aortic arch. Her ductus uh, was very large and did not appear actually that it was going to close on its own and prostaglandins were not started as was the um, initial plan. So case number two, as you can see already, is very different. 
as opposed to a lethal heart disease in an otherwise healthy baby, this was a very complex cardiac malformation in a baby who had an underlying chromosomal disorder. And if I were to say that this was not a straight line, it would be an underestimate of the course that we took with this baby and this family with punchline, everything in the end turning out okay. And I think when you do this work, you have to have a confidence that over time, as information becomes available, people will rethink their assumptions and decisions. And this was a very, very difficult case, among other things, because A, the heart disease looked different from the earlier ultrasounds to the later ultrasounds, and B, the issue of a life-limiting uh, chromosomal disorder, trisomy 18, also uh, came up. So when we first met with this mother, she was already at 34 weeks gestation, so quite far along in her pregnancy. Alicia has already talked with you about the disease and about the cell-free DMA. The mother uh, had uh, advanced maternal age. She had other children who were healthy, but this was her first child with this father. And mother remained very hopeful and did not want a potential genetic disorder or indeed confirmed genetic disorder to be a consideration in planning for her baby. And this was something that she said time and time again. Our second meeting was at 36 weeks gestation. Um, the cardiac diagnosis now included a critical coarctation. Mother had discussed the results of these studies with the father. I actually did not meet the father uh, until the day of delivery for the baby. He was present for the delivery. Uh, the parents uh, wished that the team initiate all necessary resuscitative manner, manners, pardon me, measures, start prostaglandins, and continue to update them. So from the beginning, we set a tone that as we see how the baby responds, we will be in conversation with you about what we should be doing for this baby. As it was, fortunately, I think for the baby and the family, delivery was uneventful, and the female baby was taken to the NICU on uh, CPAP, or continuous positive airway pressure. The baby had a six-week hospital course with us that included progressive pulmonary overcirculation. Remember, the ductus remained open and large two episodes of acute deterioration, including life-threatening pulmonary hemorrhage, uh, consideration of subambient oxygen because of the pulmonary overcirculation and pressors. On day 39, there was a very important meeting because throughout this time, the parents had continued to ask, or I should say the mother had continued to ask whether the baby was going to be a surgical candidate and what kind of options there would be for the baby. And at that time, the cardiothoracic surgical and cardiology divisions met together and decided that at the present time, the baby was not a candidate for any surgical intervention. To our surprise, actually to my surprise, uh, mother took this information um, without uh, a lot of pushback. I would have expected her to. I would have expected her to want consultations and second opinions, but she accepted that. Keep in mind now that she had been through and was at the baby's bedside during a couple of acute deteriorations. And if you want to talk about interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary care, picture for your mind in a moment a baby who's having a massive pulmonary hemorrhage getting epinephrine and ultimately cocaine down the endotracheal tube, a neonatologist, moi, at the bedside leading the resuscitation, 
a cardiologist at the bedside advising on other things that could potentially be done with the baby to address the pulmonary overcirculation, and Carrie Moss at the bedside supporting the team and supporting the mother through this very difficult event. I don't think it gets any more transdisciplinary than that. On day 40, mother brought siblings to the NICU to see their sister. Unfortunately, we had been in the midst of RSV season and the siblings had not been able to see the baby until that time. On day 44, seeing her deterioration, mother agreed to an allow natural death order and on day 46, the baby died peacefully in her mother's arms with the father present. So as mentioned, our first meeting was a joint meeting between neonatology and palliative care at 34 weeks gestation. At that time, as stated, mom was very focused on the cardiac defect and really resisted any information or implications related to a possible genetic complexity. During that meeting, very different from the first family that came in very resolved with their plan and their intentions, we saw a full gamut of emotions. We saw hope, despair, anger, gratitude, and desperation intermixed consistently for what was a pretty long consultative visit with this mother. And what this showed to us was that, that this mom, um, who very much wanted this child, this child with the father, the first opportunity for them to parent together, she desperately wanted this baby, and she did clearly understand what was going on. There wasn't a denial capacity, which is what we often say, oh, they just don't get it. My experience in working with these families is they always get it. They sometimes just don't choose to accept it in that moment. And so mom clearly understood what was going on and the implications of her decisions, but throughout that she remained committed to giving her baby every chance for a meaningful survival. Our second meeting occurred two weeks later, and again, we were there with neonatology. At that time, we had further information about the extent of the cardiac disease, um, and additionally, there was greater concern about the genetic component to this. At the same time, mom's desperation for this baby's survival had increased. So our, our information and prognosis had worsened, and yet our desperation for this baby to do okay had increased. At the time of delivery, we were at the bedside with cardiology and neonatology, and as stated, the birth was somewhat uneventful, but we did fear what events might be coming. And so we spent time that first day sharing um, with mom and, and celebrating the, the fact that, that the baby had arrived and, and was doing okay at the time, but also continuing to discuss the concerns of what might be coming. As stated, it was a six-week hospital course during which that time we were able to develop a relationship with the extended family. The paternal grandparents were the main source of support for this family, and so we were able to share with them. And I, I often say in palliative care, there is a unique relationship with grandparents because grandparents are watching their babies lose their baby. And that's a very different relationship than just being a parent in the room. And so we were able to provide some support for the grandparents in this situation. As Marilyn said, there was multiple resuscitative events. I'd never seen cocaine go down an ET tube for an infant. Um, and certainly my role wasn't to be part of that, but it was pretty amazing what was going, what was occurring. And what we noticed during that time, and that was one example of, of a resuscitative event, was that the staff anxiety and anguish was starting to grow. And so part of the support that we were offering was not just to the family, but also to the bedside nurses who were also feeling very stressed about 
the events and about the amount of suffering that they perceive that this infant might be experiencing. As Marilyn stated, two days prior to her passing, an A&D was put in place. So despite all of the tumultuous journey to get here in the end, she experienced a very peaceful passing, and once again, a good death was achieved. Interestingly, mom returned. So after all the gamut of emotions, and, and anger was one of the, the uh, leading emotions, she returned about a week later to offer her gratitude, but also her services. Um, she has some massage therapy training and, and offered her services to come back and provide uh, massage therapy to the nurses that were so kind to her and her baby throughout the trajectory of her illness. And so it's, it's always amazing when it comes full circle and what you realize is that all that personalization of those emotions has nothing to do with us, but has everything to do with this unfathomable journey that these families are, are set forward on. So our take-home points, again, going back to, again, it's family-centric care at its best. In this case, the mother was the patient that we spent a great deal of time with, but again, it was a two-patient model. There was a successful interdisciplinary inter-hospital approach, and in this case, the patient actually did transition to the NICU, and there was a seamless transition between those two worlds. There, again, is a demonstration of importance of collaborative meeting style and team approach, but in this case, it's not just us all starting on the same page. The key here was us staying on the same page. So as some of the polarization occurred within the family, we were able to all present a consistent approach to this child's care. And that's helping, that helps each of us provide support to each other. In this case, we supported the family as in the other, but in this case, we did a great deal of support for the team. And once again, thankfully, we did meet the end of a good death. I think it's really important, as then I've mentioned grief a couple times, but just as we come to the close, that we reflect on what grief really is and what it does. I don't know if people are familiar with this picture. It, was, it caused a bit of a media frenzy. This is an orca carrying her deceased calf on her back for an unprecedented 17 days through the Northwest Pacific. And what was so striking was this is that it represented the universality, the commonality of grief, that we all feel grief and how profound grief is for a mother that loses their infant. I think it's important to know how important grief is and to recognize what grief is and to call it what grief is. One of my more recent favorite quotes is, I sat with anger long enough until she turned and introduced herself as grief. And I think it's important to realize how profound that element is for families as they go through this process. It begins long before we think, and it extends long before we would wish for. But it's not just about the families. This is a lovely sculpture that sits um, in, on Lake Geneva in Switzerland, and it's called Melancholy, but it's become a representative of what people feel is grief. It's a hole that is just there, and it's present, and it doesn't necessarily go away, but it may get better. And I think as we focus on this being a quality and safety rounds, and as we talk about the fact that we're now in a time where we focus on mindfulness and we were looking at support initiatives through this hospital, looking at peer support, looking at second victim literature, I think it's important to acknowledge that grief extends to all of us as the care providers that take care of these infants and their families. And so one of the things that helps with grief is sharing it, acknowledging it, and taking care of the team members that you work with. So as we come to a close, I wanted to invite the team members to come up. Um, we were happy to field any questions, but I think what we wanted to leave you with was just on a personal note, what this collaboration has meant to each of us and to our teams and our divisions. And I think in starting, for me, it's, it's allowed me this incredible opportunity to know my, the mothers and the babies as two separate patients, but one special family. And it's also given me a great opportunity to work with an exceptional team of people 
and to provide support to that team with the commonality of acknowledging what grief looks like for our families and for ourselves and being able to share this experience so that we can do it and then turn around and go to the next room and do it just as well the next time. So it's been a pretty exceptional opportunity to work between hospitals, between divisions, and to provide this service for patients and families.